0: Welcome to Cases and Controversies, a Supreme Court podcast by Bloomberg Law. I'm Kimberly Robinson. And I'm Greg Storr.
1: Kimberly, we got our weekly drop of opinions on Thursday, May 25th, with the court handing down three more cases. That means that as we head into, hopefully, because I have vacation
0: plans, the final month of the term, <laughs> we have 30 more opinions left to go. Right. So we're going to bring on a guest to talk about two of those cases. The other case, Dupree versus Younger, um, Yeah, we're not going to talk about that one. Uh, But in reading from her majority opinion from the bench in the case, Justice Amy Coney Barrett said that the case was of interest to, quote, litigants, lawyers and law professors. So if you fall into one of those categories, go ahead and read about post-trial motions under 50B.
1: Uh, Have fun. Isn't that actually a a big percentage of our audience, Kimberly?
0: (laughs) So go ahead and read about uh, post-trial motions under 50B. Okay. All right. Happy, Greg? Yeah. Thank you. All right. Uh, before we get to our guests, though, uh, Justice Kagan presented an award to Chief Justice Roberts on Tuesday. And in accepting the award, he talked a little bit, sort of, about <laughs> ethics. Greg?
1: <laughs> yeah, it was It was at the very end of his remarks. Um, you know, it was mostly about, you know, she said a lot of very nice things about him, mentioned a- along the way that they, of course, disagree on some very, very big issues. And then there was a lot of talk about Judge Friendly, for whom the, the award he received was named, and, and John Roberts clerk for him, and, and uh, you know, what he learned from Judge Friendly. And at the very end, the tail end, the chief justice uh, tacked on a few comments. And on a final issue of concern inside the court. Where he said, I want to assure people I am committed to make certain that we as a court adhere to the highest standards of conduct. And he said, we are continuing to look at things we can do practically to that effect. And I am confident there are ways to do that that are consistent with our status as an independent branch of government under the Constitution's separation of powers. Thank you very much for the Henry Friendly Medal. Uh, So, you you know, to some degree, he repeated the sorts of things that were in that statement of ethics the court put out a few weeks ago. Uh, it is the first time we have heard him say out loud that there are ethical issues that the court is is grappling with, at least the first time we've heard him say that in recent months. But I would say Kimberly, uh, you know, kind of a minimalist statement. He didn't spend a whole lot of time saying, you know, we we recognize that there are, are legitimate issues that other people are concerned about.
0: So you don't think that people will be assured by this by this statement? <laughs> I,
1: I, I am sure a small number of people out there will be assured, and I am also sure that that uh, most of the people who are hollering the loudest about the ethical issues the court has been grappling with, uh, dealing with lately, uh, will not be assuaged.
0: Um, so, Greg, can I tell you what I took out of this medal? Please. So... During various times in their remarks, Justice Kagan and Chief Justice Roberts talked about how they prepared for this event. And Justice Roberts, you know, indicated that he he sat down and he thought about it and kind of planned it out and sort of suggested he had this long drafting process. And Justice Kagan said, well, when I started to think about what I would say this morning, I was like, really? You're... <laughs> <laughs> this morning? <laughs> you decided to start prepping this morning?
1: They've been busy. They still, you know, since they didn't decide any cases for the first seven months of the term, they they, they got a lot to do. Correct.
0: They have like nine months to decide fifty-nine cases. They're not that busy. Okay. Okay. They're not that busy. Um. Anyway. All right, so that it doesn't seem like we actually only started preparing for this podcast this morning, uh, (laughs) let's move on to our guests. Let's talk about opinions. Joining us to do that is Constitutional
1: Accountability Center's Miriam Becker Cohen. In a case known as Sackett versus EPA, it's a long-running dispute between an Idaho couple and the Army Corps of Engineers and the EPA, the justices unanimously sided with the couple but disagreed dramatically on the reach of the Clean Water Act's protections from pollution. Miriam, give us a brief overview of of what the issue before the court was.
2: Yeah, so the the Sacketts have, since 2007, been trying to build this property on some wetlands that they own that are near a body of water called Priest Lake in Idaho. And the issue is whether those wetlands constitute waters of the United States or navigable waters. And this matters because under the Clean Water Act, the federal government has authority to regulate and Protect waters that constitute navigable waters. So there are certain permitting requirements that would apply, or it's possible that the Sackets wouldn't be able to build their home at all. So the issue in the case basically are what wetlands within the meaning of the Clean Water Act constitute navigable waters. And the Clean Water Act doesn't provide a ton of guidance on this, it simply defines navigable waters as waters of the United States, including the territorial seas. And there's another provision of the Clean Water Act that says that wetlands that are adjacent to navigable waters constitute navigable waters but that's really all we have to work with so this is a case about statutory interpretation and the justices are all grappling with the meaning of of this phrase navigable waters so
0: when we got the opinion i looked down and i was really surprised because it looked like it was a unanimous opinion there were no dissenting opinions but that really didn't actually when you dug into the opinion did not seem to be the case it actually looks like a 5-4 case so Tell us sort of what the daylight between the five justices in the majority, as I'm going to I'm just going to call it the majority and the four in dissent um, really had to say about it.
2: The reason this looks like a unanimous opinion is because all of the justices are rejecting the test for ascertaining what constitute waters of the United States applied by the court below, which was a test that from a Justice Kennedy concurrence in an earlier case that basically said that wetlands constitute waters of the United States if they have a significant nexus to adjacent navigable waters. And all of the justices are rejecting that test. But the majority is adopting a test that basically says that for wetlands to be waters of the United States, they have to have what Justice Alito calls a continuous surface connection to another navigable water that itself constitutes a water of the United States. This continuous surface connection basically means that the wetland has to be adjoining another navigable water. Whereas the other opinion by Justice Kavanaugh, as well as the, the liberal justices who, who joined him, they're saying that, yes, these, this continuous surface connection surely suffices, but there are also other wetlands that constitute waters of the United States. If the wetland is separated from a covered water, only by, say, a man-made dike or a barrier or even a natural berm or beach dune or something like that, that would still constitute a water of the United States because these wetlands are still adjacent. The, basically, the concurring opinions interpret adjacent to mean close to or nearby as opposed to directly adjoining, which is what the majority Alito opinion interpreted as.
1: Miriam, I want to ask you a little bit about the way the court reached its decision. So as you said, the Clean Water Act doesn't have a whole lot of words to tell us exactly what we're talking about here. Uh, The court, of course, famously is moving more to a textualist mode where they just look at the words of the, the, the statute. In this case, they did that along with This notion that Congress needs to be exceedingly clear if it's going to intrude in this particular area on what otherwise might be state authority, affecting private property rights. And and then particularly what I want to ask you is the Kagan opinion, the liberal justices, sort of took the court on on those terms. They, they made a textualist argument in advance. They didn't say, for example, this Chevron doctrine notion where we defer to the agency to, in its area of expertise here. That wasn't something that they argued in dissent. What do you make of the fact that the dissenting or concurring justices uh, were basically saying, okay, fine, we're, we're gonna uh, look at statutes like this based on just their text?
2: Yeah, that's a that's a great question. I think it really shows the way in which the court as a whole is moving towards a textualist approach to these cases. And you see that in all sorts of opinions. And I think what is sort of most telling of, in terms of the way that Justice Kagan's opinion really focuses on the text of the opinion is the fact that she takes Justice Alito and the majority to task for Claiming to write a textualist opinion that actually really does depend a lot on what are essentially the substantive canons of statutory interpretation, the clear statement rule that you just mentioned, the idea that Congress must be exceedingly clear when it wants to disrupt the federal-state balance in this arena. That's not something that is found in the text. That rule, that that that's sort of a rule that. The court has essentially invented to to put the thumb on the scale in favor of private property owners, as Justice Kagan puts it. The majority also relies on this vagueness concern, that because violations of the Clean Water Act can come with criminal penalties, there's a need for excessive clarity in the way the the act conveys the meaning of what wetlands what are covered by the act. And again, this is not a, a textual interpretation. So th- this is kind of a, an interesting case, but not the first one in which the more liberal justices are actually pointing to the more conservative justices and saying – you claim to be doing textualism here, but that's not really what you're doing. Here's what the textualist approach is and if if you were true to the text, this is this is the result you would reach,
0: yeah, Greg and I were discussing um this case in preparation for the podcast. and you know, you mentioned that there were other cases. What really sticks out to me is uh, the the case not too long ago, which said that LGBTQ workers were protected by federal civil rights laws and You know, it's interesting to me that all of these opinions, you know, concurring and dissenting opinions are all textual and textualism is supposed to get us to like the right decision. And yet we have here two opinions that are saying like the statute clearly says this. So I wonder long term effects what that means for textualism. If you have any thoughts on that.
2: I think textualism is here to stay. You know, you see all the justices embracing text and history in, in these decisions, and it's just a question of how they're applying it. I was thinking a little bit about the case West Virginia versus EPA that Justice Kagan brings up in her concurring opinion. And that case involved an interpretation of the Clean Air Act and a conservative majority of the court construed a provision of that act pretty narrowly invoking what's known as the major questions doctrine, which is another one of these sort of clear statement rules that says that in issues of great importance, essentially, Congress has to be exceedingly clear. And the dissenting liberal justices in that case, again, took the majority to task for purporting to engage in textualism when in fact, they were relying on this substantive canon that Allowed them to contort the text in a way that, in Justice Kagan's view, in, in the liberal justices' view, sort of allowed them to reach their desired policy outcome. So I think I the the pushback that we're seeing from the more liberal justices is not a pushback to textualism so much as a pushback to textualism that's done in a dishonest fashion.
1: I know you're interested in the case. The brief you filed focused more on kind of methodology and and the legal question, but I am curious that you're. Your thoughts on the practical implications of this ruling? What do you, uh, what do you think about that?
2: This ruling has major practical implications. Um, I've seen folks saying that almost 90 million acres of formerly protected wetlands are now deeply threatened, and the fact is that this is a bit of an upheaval. The federal government has been regulating these types of lands for years. The The Clean Water Act was enacted in 1972. So this is nothing new. And now it's really going to be up to states in, in many ways to protect their waters that are no longer and, and the wetlands that are no longer covered by the Clean Water Act. And I think you're going to see in some states a real hesitancy to do that, which, you know, a part of why the federal government has been empowered to protect these wetlands and these waters is because they serve an important filtering function for larger bodies of water and pollution of wetlands can impact downstream larger bodies of water in, in significant ways. So there, there's definitely cause for concern there. But I think People who care about clean water are going to have to lobby their state governments and ask the federal government what it can do, even even despite this
0: interpretation. So returning the issue back to the states. Um, I've heard that somewhere. Uh, (laughs) So let's move on to Tyler versus Hennepin County. This was a unanimous takings case. This one was like for real unanimous. Yes. (laughs) Um. We did a deep dive episode on this, so listeners can go listen to that if they want a little bit more detail. But could you just give us a brief overview of what's happening in this case?
2: Sure. So in this case, Geraldine Tyler, a 94-year-old woman, she lives in this condominium for several years, and then she moves to a new place, and she stops paying property taxes on on the condominium. And so she ends up racking up $15,000 worth of property tax debt and fees and penalties. And under Minnesota law, the county, Hennepin County, takes absolute title to her property after a certain period of time passes. And after they do that, they sell her property for $40,000. And rather than returning the $25,000 surplus to her, the county pockets it and puts it into the public fisc. So they're essentially making money on the seizure of her property. So the the issue in this case is basically whether – the county's retention of those surplus funds constitutes either a taking under the takings clause of the 5th amendment or an excessive fine under the excessive fines clause of the 8th amendment
1: were you surprised at all at how how quickly and easily the court handled this case i mean the argument on the <laughs> other side included you know the the county saying look we you know gave this this taxpayer you know 12,000 notices and uh, she had all manner of ability to come in and uh, make some arrangements to to pay taxes and she just ignored it and we need this sort of thing as sort of the the stick to encourage taxpayers to actually do what they're supposed to do but apparently the court heard arguments on April 26 decided the case on May 25th less than a month to, to deal with those issues
2: <laughs> yeah I saw someone on Twitter called this one of those come on man cases but <laughs> which I thought was was funny you know I wasn't all that surprised by how quickly this case was decided. I think the takings clause issue was fairly straightforward. You know, all of those opportunities that you mentioned to reclaim the property, what's key about those is they all came before the taking actually took place. So the idea that someone can avoid a taking by basically doing what they're supposed to do in the first place, pay their property taxes or sell the property and use the funds to pay the past due property taxes, sort of negates the whole purpose of the takings clause. The takings clause is about after the government takes private property, they are required to reimburse the the private property owner. So I, I think the court looked at this case and saw what was very clearly a case of government taking private property and, and not paying what it what was due. And so I'm not all that surprised by by how quickly it came down, though though the court has been slow this term. So maybe they're uh, trying to move more quickly now.
1: Miriam, I want to step back just a little bit and talk about originalism and constitutional interpretation. We talked earlier about textualism, and you, you said that textualism is probably here to stay. Originalism is this, this idea that really started with what we think of as the conservative wing of the court and conservative academics saying we need to interpret the Constitution according to its original words. Is that also something you think is here to stay? Is that a, a mode of interpreting the Constitution that we just have to all accept and deal with?
2: You know, I think originalism means different things to different people at the Constitutional Accountability Center. We see originalism as interpreting the whole Constitution as it was amended over time as an inherently progressive document. And I think true originalism as we've argued in a number of the briefs we filed, really does frequently lead to progressive outcomes. And you've definitely seen some of the liberal justices leaning into that as well. In one of the first arguments of the term, Justice Jackson dug deep into the 14th Amendment history to help explain why Voting Rights Act remedies don't have to be race neutral. So particularly where we have this conservative supermajority on the court that claims to be originalist, I think originalist arguments carry significant weight with this court. So it's important for groups like the Constitutional Accountability Center and and other progressive groups to be making these arguments and not ceding the ground of the Constitution and history to just the conservative wings. Right. I mean, one one question I had, and
0: this is sort of is parallel to our discussion of textualism is, I mean, are you expecting that some of the justices are going to read your briefs and be like, aha, yes, this is the originalist view? Or is there sort of some other purpose behind making these arguments to the court?
2: Well, I think first and foremost, our our goal is to persuade the court of the right outcome. And Mm -hmm. I think there can be echo chambers in, among justices and clerks and judges and i think sometimes there are pieces of history that are neglected that we want to bring to the court's attention so that they are aware that there might be this other evidence out there that supports a different outcome than the one they're thinking i think if all else fails you know if if our arguments can't persuade the court we're hopeful that putting them out there will at least demonstrate to people that history is important and history can be a tool used by progressive and liberal organizations just as much as it can be a tool used by conservative and right-leaning organizations. So I think, uh, yeah, our, our goal is to get that history out there and make clear that it can lead to progressive outcomes if it's used properly. All right. Well,
0: Miriam, thank you so much for chatting with us about these cases. Um, It was great to have you on. And we have 30 more opinions to go. So, uh, you know, good luck. Buckle up. (laughs)
2: Yes. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me.
0: All right, Greg. So as I mentioned, we have opinions, more opinions
1: coming on Thursday. We do. And now that the Clean Water Act case has been decided, the oldest outstanding case and the only one from the October sitting is that big Voting Rights Act case out of Alabama. It has to do with redistricting and the extent to which when map makers draw districts, they have a duty to create majority black or majority Hispanic districts.
0: All right, well, we'll see if we get that one on Thursday in our March Toward Zero Opinions. Until then, you can follow along with all the latest Supreme Court news at news.bloomberglaw.com. I felt like I was in jail every day when I was going to work. I'm like, I got to get out of here.
1: My executive order calls on the FTC to ban or limit non-compete agreements. Let workers choose who they want to work
3: for. This season on Uncommon Law, we're exploring one of the most expansive Federal Trade Commission proposals in modern history, a nationwide ban on non-compete clauses.
2: Non-compete clauses can really restrict competition. They can be coercive. They can be exploitative. We'll
3: talk to workers who were desperate to take new jobs in their industry, only to be blocked by threat of a lawsuit.
0: I remember getting served my cease and desist and thinking that this can't be right, this can't be fair. How can she get away with this?
3: And we'll talk to the business owners who say they depend on these clauses to keep their companies afloat.
2: I think like with anything else, when you enter into an agreement, there are rules and you decide if you want to participate in that or not. I just believe that there should be some protections for small businesses like myself that are already in a very competitive industry.
3: Plus. Does the FTC under chair Lena Khan even have the power to pass this rule?
2: Look, Congress gave the FTC the authority to check unfair methods of competition.
1: There is no limit to what Khan thinks she may be able to achieve if she can label it an unfair method of competition.
0: Lena Khan is not coming out of nowhere. It really is the natural progression of the insights that we have about how harmful non-competes are on our markets.
3: Join us as we explore the far-reaching implications of this proposal and the likely court battle that could shape the future of the American workforce. That's this season on Uncommon Law from Bloomberg Industry Group.